Growing up in a Lancaster Mennonite cocoon, we often heard the concept of stewardship taught in our families and churches. Stewardship is how we manage the opportunities and resources God entrusts to us. Life is one seamless whole. The worship and service we owe to God include our total lives. Mission programs and service receive strong support. Those were years of a military draft in the U.S. The draft might be considered a tax placed on young men, payable in two years of required military service. The Mennonite Church and other peace churches promoted serving, but not in the military, which ultimately resorts to violence in the name of national defense. MCC and Mennonite mission agencies developed alternative programs of service in healthcare, education, conservation, agriculture, and development. John Eby and our congregation administered some of these. The programs required living away from one's home community, some in the U.S. and some in other countries. Young men in the church were expected to serve in one of these alternative programs. As I neared my college completion and Lois and I anticipated marriage, we began exploring where we might serve. The preparation included a government physical examination. Because I lacked a right-hand trigger finger, I failed the examination. This exempted me from the mandatory service requirement. By that time, however, we were well on our way to, uh, with plans to serve three years in Tanzania, where Ernie would teach in a boys' boarding school, and I would work in the uh, Mennonite Church headquarters. We hoped the experience would be a valuable learning, growing one for us, and it seemed that our skills and training matched a need in newly independent Tanzania. We considered this need, along with the affirmation of family, friends, and church, to be a call from God. Later, in midlife, we served for a year at Rosslyn Academy in Kenya. Then, at the beginning of retirement, we taught for two years at Meserete Christos College in Ethiopia. In Tanzania, for the first time in our lives, we were the racial minority. We began to understand how our racial identity associated us with wealth, with the previous colonial rulers in Africa, and of course with the West. Our diverse school faculty came from Tanzania, Australia, New Zealand, East Germany, India, and of course the U.S., and from multiple denominations, in addition to our brand of Mennonite. Our world expanded. During those years, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy were assassinated. We learned of how others in the world viewed USA's failure to practice a just society. As white teachers in a school of black students, in situations of conflict or perceived injustice, we were readily seen as the oppressors. The day news of Robert Kennedy's death reached our school, I wasn't sure I would be able to teach my classes because our students were so upset with me as an American. When visiting in churches and homes of our students, we received generous hospitality from persons who themselves had only the bare necessities. African culture taught us 
a keener awareness of spiritual forces in contrast to our Western scientific and materialistic explanations for weather, disease, and disasters. We witness the value of support systems from extended family and village communities in a highly relational culture in contrast to our Western individualistic and often lonely approach to life. While our work in each assignment was all-consuming and we gave 100% of our energy during those years, it's hard to identify just what we gave to God. It's much easier to enumerate the many ways God provided for us and grew us through these experiences. Their impact on our worldview continues to shape our values and decision-making. Hello, everybody. My name is Melissa Han, and I'm one of the, the buyers and designers um, at 10,000 Villages. Uh, 10,000 Villages is an, is an organization that works to create opportunities for artisans in developing countries to earn income by bringing their products and stories to our markets through long-term fair trading relationships. Started by Edna Ruth Butler. I have this at my desk. She's my one of my heroes. Um, uh, started nearly 75 years ago, uh, Edna Ruth Byler um, was in service with Mennonite Central Committee, um, and she traveled to Puerto Rico, where she met women in La Plata Valley. Uh, they were struggling to feed their families. Um, having lived through hard times as well during the Great Depression, she knew the face of poverty. These women were talented in embroidery. The meager beginnings of 10,000 Villages started out of the trunk of her car, selling these beautiful creations the women had made that she brought back with her. She is a wonderful example of, what, um, of giving to God what is God's. When Todd first asked me to do a five-minute video on the story of my life about how Christian service has meant giving God to, you know, giving to God the things that are God's, I kind of first had to look it up. <laughs> I, I Googled it um, to see what others had to say about the topic. I found an article by Professor Matthew Skinner, a contributing writer for the Huffington Post, that talks about this very story in the Bible. He states, because we are of God's world, when Jesus inspects the coin and says, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, Jesus doesn't say that our political lives, well, he uses the word political, but it really also constitute, um, constitutes economic lives, um, and our religious lives constitute separate spheres. Skinner states, instead, Jesus turns the discussion to speak more broadly about the long, strong reach of power. And again, I think about economic power here and about its untiring ability to compete for people's most fundamental loyalties. Those words, fundamental loyalties, really stuck out for me. Skinner goes on to say, you have to use this coin with Caesar's face on it to stay in the emperor's good graces, even as the coin itself compromises what you might stand for. Then I thought about it. We are all in the game with the almighty dollar. 
where our purchasing choices either might have me potentially becoming complicit in society's blasphemies by stopping um, by shopping fast fashion. Fast fashion is a term that means to get it fast and get it cheap. Or my purchase could sustain and change somebody's life. Who among us isn't drawn to that super soft, cuddly sweater made of synthetic knit gleaming in the window of a big box discounter for $5? Our security and comfort come at a price. These products that pull at our senses. Skinner states, I am not calling the desire for these things bad, but they do demand our loyalties and require us to make commitments. This statement really made me think about the question, what does it mean to live a heart-centered life? It takes a village, many villages, many eyes, hands, hearts to center the work before us. We are in it for the long haul together. Many of the relationships are like a marriage, even though I'm not married. <laughs> you have good days and you have bad, weathering life's changes together as best we can. How do we invest our capital, our emotional capital? COVID has put the kibosh on the personability of our purchase with our stores being closed for so many months. Now they're open. Closing the stores made me think hard about the wonderful champions of change. 10,000 Villages is so fortunate to partner with. One of these partners is Tara Projects in India. It was begun in the 1970s by one person, Professor Sham Sharma. And among other things, Tara is responsible for working uh, with the exploitive glassmaking industry in Farazabad, keeping children out of the furnaces, out from being exploited behind closed doors, and into Tara-founded schools. Other commercial retailers, they don't do that. <laughs> um, social workers of Tara help to empower children to be agents of change in their community, to fight child labor. These are the many stories of courage and care. I wish I could tell you about all of them. So I think about these dear people, and I'm so humbled to know them. They are doing the hard work on the ground like Edna Ruth did, seeing the face of poverty, singing, seeing the humanness in us all. Do we participate? How do we participate? In some ways, COVID has forced us to slow down, to look, to listen, to learn. What are we learning about from each other? How do we spend the precious time and capital God has given us to be together, to care for one another? During this upcoming holiday season, won't you take the time to learn about the stories? These people are my heroes. <laughs> to support them, I encourage you to visit 10,000villages.com. Um, what is a gift but an emotional transaction that shows others that you care? I know this story was supposed to be about me and my journey, and it, and it is, but Learning the stories about them is so much more precious. Thank you. In our scripture reading, 
Jesus recognized that the government may have a claim to some of our possessions, and we are to give to God the things that are God's. As we talk about our service to God, we often focus on how we use our money, time, or material. But service is not only what we do, it involves why we give service. In this story, the words we say can be a test of who we allow to claim lordship over our lives. In the mid-1970s, revolution in Ethiopia ended the autocratic reign of Haile Selassie and launched the nation on a course with Marxism as its guiding principle. During these years, Sharon and I were teaching at the Bible Academy, a school started by Eastern Mennonite Missions and operated under the Mesoretic Christos Church, the Ethiopian Mennonite Church. <clears throat> this was a boarding high school with 300 Ethiopian students. The incident I will describe happened four years before the school was closed by the government. The revolutionary government had set up new municipal administrative structures called the Kebele. Operated by local elected officials, it managed the recently nationalized rental properties and provided community security. Political cadres assigned to each local Kebele by the central government promoted the new Marxist doctrines and watched out for anti-government activity. At one point, the political cadres assigned to our local Kabbali felt that our students were not getting sufficient teaching in Marxist political theory and demanded all students to come over each Saturday morning for instruction. Part of these Saturday morning sessions involved chanting slogans, statements like, down with American imperialism, and land to the tiller, but it also included slogans that involved cursing your enemies and calling for their death. Left fists were to be raised in the air with shouting as a group. Each Friday evening, a group of committed Christians among our student body held a student-organized Friday night prayers. And after a few weeks of listening to the Sunday, Saturday morning Marxist teaching, the question of participation in chanting the slogans came up in this meeting. Some said, I just raise my fist and mumble, praise the Lord. Others said, you are only doing what you are forced to say, and it is not your words, not your responsibility. Others said, just refuse to lift the fist and say anything. There was no agreement as to where to draw the line. Was this really a worthy issue and important enough to risk getting into trouble with the cadres? That evening, they came to no consensus and did not agree on a plan. But the next morning, by chance, several of these students who had discussed the issue the night before sat together and the cadres noticed their lack of enthusiasm and their limited participation. When confronted about it, some conceded and said the slogan, but there were others who stood with their convictions and openly refused to cooperate. About 15 students were arrested and detained. We had to drive meals over from the school kitchen, and they were kept in an old warehouse, sleeping on the floor. They debated with the cadres and tried to make the case that they were responsible, loyal citizens. The students pointed out that there was freedom of religion, and they were not trying to be against the government. Religious belief was at the core of the refusal to curse. 
After a few days, the cadres gave up. Neither side convinced the other to change their position. The students were released to go back to campus. However, there was a lot more to process. Were those detained to be considered stronger Christians than those that had participated in the slogan chanting? Who had done the right thing? How can a judgmental attitude be avoided? <clears throat> there were no easy answers as they struggled to fellowship together again. While no one will threaten us with arrest if we refuse to shout a Marxist curse on an enemy, we do live with similar tensions today. As we draw our lines and decide whether to cooperate or to resist, who do we allow to guide our decision? A Marxist slogan to curse enemies does not seem very different from what we hear being said in the current political climate. And how do we respond? How do we relate to those who draw their lines at different places? And can we avoid being judgmental and keep in fellowship with them? These are difficult questions and worthy of our reflection.